0: Hello and welcome, everyone, to episode 61 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is William Maley, Emeritus Professor of Diplomacy at the Australian National University and author of the recent CIS paper, Afghanistan on the Brink of an Abyss. Professor William Maley, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Uh, better than a lot of my friends in Afghanistan at the moment, I would have to say, who are very apprehensive about what the future holds for them.
0: I can imagine, and let me start by noting to everyone that uh, on May 28th, Australia did close its embassy in Kabul over security concerns. Have things really become so uncertain in Afghanistan that you can't even run a diplomatic mission in the country?
1: Uh, No, uh, other countries have retained their diplomatic missions in Afghanistan, and indeed one of the fears that the Afghan government entertained when Australia did close its embassy was that others would use that as a pretext for following. But there was such criticism, even from the United States, of Australia's closure as uh, a somewhat premature step that uh, other embassies, I think, shrank from going down that particular direction. But having said that, the situation is also very uncertain in Afghanistan. Uh, The uh, uh, history of the country tends to suggest that crises can uh, crystallize very quickly indeed and move a much greater pace than people anticipated and if one goes back to 1992 when the communist regime collapsed in afghanistan precisely 29 days elapsed between the onset of that particular crisis and the collapse of the regime which really amounted to the collapse of the state as well so there are reasons to be very wary about the current situation in afghanistan is australia
0: then especially risk averse or I mean, why is why is Australia taking this step, not other countries?
1: It's a bit hard to tell. Uh, as far as I can ascertain, it wasn't a specific recommendation from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade that led to the closure of the embassy. Uh, I think the department, uh, understandably, had highlighted some particular security challenges that were likely to be around. But the Australian embassy is not a particularly high-profile high mission uh, within um, Kabul. It didn't advertise its local. Uh, If you talk to Afghans, they would often say, oh, is there an Australian embassy in Kabul? Um, uh, And uh, it was not uh, a physically dramatic presence in the way that the US embassy in Canberra might be that was opened by Eleanor Roosevelt in 1943. The building uh, in itself is a symbol of uh, uh, the presence uh, of a foreign uh, mission in the country. In, in, in Afghanistan, the Australian embassy was in uh, an, an unmarked uh, facility in a back street with multiple layers of security between uh, the streets through which ordinary Afghans drove and the, uh, the street in which the entrance to the embassy was located. So it's a bit of a strange development in some ways, although it does, I think, reflect to a significant degree the alarming security situation in Afghanistan.
0: Now, I should note for people that you are a scholar who's studied Afghanistan I, I, for decades. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have a very deep knowledge, and I assume a very deep uh, set of correspondence in Afghanistan. You've mentioned some of your friends and their concerns. What What is the mood on the ground among people you know in Afghanistan?
1: The mood's very apprehensive at the moment. Uh, and to understand why that is, it's useful to say something about Change over the last twenty years, Afghanistan has gone from being one of the most isolated countries in the world to one of the most connected countries in the world. In that twenty-year period, the uh, in in Afghanistan, seventy percent of the population is under the age of thirty, which means that a large proportion of the population has actually been socialised in the post two thousand and one. Environment, which has been marked by a proliferation of mass media, particularly FM radio and television stations, um, uh, a majority of rural households now actually have access to television. Uh, in addition, um, more than 20 million people have mobile phones within Afghanistan because the decision was taken after 2001 to forget about Um, fixed line telephones and go straight to mobile technology so they have 5G rolled out in large tracts of Afghanistan which means that people are connected with each other and connected to the wider world but that means they also have a fairly strong sense right through the country of being abandoned just now because that's the lesson that's coming to them through mass media and through uh, technologies of communication. So this is feeding a real apprehension about uh, what the future might hold. And in particular, they're getting grisly images of the way in which the Taliban are behaving in the parts of the country into which they've already moved, where they're repressing women, uh, hunting down human rights activists, activists. Uh, Doing uh, murdering people in public, doing all sorts of uh, really gruesome things that uh, are a throwback to exactly the way in which they behaved in the late 1990s. And that's very scary for people who have grown up with a, a modern vision of the world where they want to be educated, where they want to have entrepreneurial opportunities, all those sorts of things.
0: Right, understandably, uh, William. You know this is a live show. and We do have audience interaction, and I do have to want to say a quick hello to Stephen and Anthony, who both already pushed questions into the chat window. Sure. Anyone else who has questions they want to put in, you know, please feel free. I'm going to pick up on that. You know, Afghanistan's become a modern country. Um, Anthony wants to ask: Did Americans, did the United States, make a mistake in not restoring the previous monarchy? And he says one U.S. academic actually suggested this. But let me broaden the question. Because I, I don't think we, we seriously expect a, a monarchy to be reestablished okay. in Afghanistan. But the, the U.S. make a mistake by not building on traditional sources of legitimacy in Afghanistan?
1: Yes, I think they did. Um, the former monarch of Afghanistan, Shah, who occupied the throne from 1933 to 1973, did come back after 2001 uh, with a title of father of the nation, and he, he lived until 2007. That didn't do an enormous amount to offer legitimacy. Probably the greater mistake was not to recognise the significance of legitimate local governance structures in Afghanistan, which have been studied in a brilliant book by Jennifer Brick-Mutazashvili of the University of Pittsburgh called Informal Order and the State in Afghanistan. And she she has another book on land and property rights in Afghanistan coming out uh, just in the next couple of months and is really one of the preeminent scholars of the way in which legitimacy resides at the local level where people know those who are aspiring to exercise power, Uh, they can sit in judgment on what they're doing. By contrast, the constitution of 2004 provided Afghanistan with a highly centralized state uh, with a presidential political system in which uh, all key officials, down to the level of provincial governors or uh, the so called administrators of uh, districts, are appointed from Kabul. And that had the effect of detaching a lot of ordinary Afghans from any sense of. Uh, the state as a legitimate presence in their lives. It became yet another intrusive factor where suddenly a power holder who had no particular connection to the district or the province could be parachuted in from Kabul. And all the kind of arguments about uh, the virtues of local government that go back to mill in considerations on representative government were missed out in this kind of environment. It was partly because the state had really collapsed after 1992 and there was a very strong belief uh, amongst people in the Afghan elite that a kind of strong Hobbesian state to hold forces in order was what was uh, required, but there wasn't sufficient attention paid to the way in which that could actually produce abusive institutions uh, uh, that would extract resources for the benefit of those who happened to be on top, rather than institutions that would enjoy local legitimacy. Uh, And... uh, Really, in this kind of environment, part of the problem is that building institutions that allow ordinary people to rule well takes time, and very often intervening powers want to get out more quickly rather than uh, commit to the kind of durable engagement that's probably necessary to nurture that kind of structure.
0: I'm interested to hear you say that the U.S. imposed a highly centralized state on Afghanistan. Because uh, looking back to a previous generation of U.S. democracy building, the occupation in Japan was very concerned after World War II in decentralizing the state and building local institutions. Do you think that that contrast has you know anything to do with the way maybe the United States has changed over those uh, you know sixty seventy years in between?
1: Yeah I think the impetus to have a strong presidential system in Afghanistan really came from a sense that it would be good to have one key figure with whom the United States as an intervening power could engage rather than confronting the more complex task of uh, having to engage with uh, a diverse range of uh, power holders in different parts of the country with legitimacy of their own and perhaps in areas which were, were less secure. Um, but, of course, if, if the state has collapsed and you then try to build a strong centralised state, you fuel a very ferocious um, pattern of political competition because with low levels of trust, which is often what you get when you've had years of conflict, nobody really trusts anyone else not to abuse power if they, don't, if they get their hands on it. And so everyone will fight for control of a potentially strong state because they fear what will happen if anyone else their competitors get control of such a state and uh, and that was very obvious really from the early days uh, the, 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 another problem with the state was that the so-called bond conference in 2001 provided for up to 29 departments within the transitional administration when they probably required six to eight. Uh, And uh, no one really thought about what the scope and strength of the state needed to be. Instead, the state was treated as a positional good to be apportioned out as a set of rewards to the different parties that had taken part in the bond Agreement. And one ended up with an economics ministry, a finance ministry, a commerce ministry and a reconstruction ministry none of which had clearly defined responsibilities at the early stage of transition, but all of which could see money coming over the horizon from donors, and it again fueled ferocious competition because new ministries wanting to maximise their cut of the donor dollar rapidly worked out that if they said that all their competitors were corrupt, they might have a better chance of getting the money. And that uh, then had poisonous effects on attempts to get the different Fragments of the state to work together in an effective fashion, and it wasn't an example of a kind of constructive separation of powers that would prevent abuse. It just became uh, a mechanism for dysfunctional competition over resources and uh, and uh, and argumentation between different political parties.
0: Uh, that's interesting. I know you cover that in your paper, but is that really any different from the situation in? Most of the other least developed countries in the world, uh, you know, certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, I've heard many of the same criticisms without the kind of you know, civil war maybe that was going on in Afghanistan, but the same sort of governance problems that you're highlighting in Afghanistan.
1: Yes, I think uh, really part of it, there's an interesting wider problem of uh, related to international involvement in institutional design, which actually comes out from this case, as well as a lot of other cases, that very often the critical questions of the scope and strength of the state simply don't get discussed at the point when it's necessary to discuss them. Uh, and uh, Afghanistan really had a two-stage process. There was the Bonn Conference in 2001, and then there was so-called grand assembly or lawyer jigger in 2003-2004 which uh, drafted a new constitution and it was from that that the presidential system came but um, the decisions that had been taken years earlier in 2001 had already saddled afghanistan with a bloated state Uh, the moment one had 29 departments apportioned between different political forces, it became very difficult then to embark on a process of rationalisation of the structure of the state and a reconsideration of what functions were appropriate for the state to perform, because those parties that did have control over some fraction of the state were going to, had a stronger incentive to fight to retain that fraction of the state under their control than anyone else had to uh, mobilize for a more efficient system. It's classic Mansour Olson logic of collective action kind of problem.
0: Right, we did have a follow up question from Anthony about uh, the Taliban. I know you can't address this in your paper, what proportion yeah. of the population actually support the Taliban? But let me also use that as an opportunity to ask you to explain for us just what is the Taliban?
1: Yeah, uh, the Taliban is a Pakistan supported military movement that emerged first in 1994. Uh, and took over the city of Kandahar that year, um, Herat in 1995, and Kabul in 1996, before being overthrown by Operation Enduring Freedom uh, in uh, 2001. Uh, It was drawn from, not from traditional Afghan society, but from orphans in refugee camps, who had not actually experienced normal family life because their status as orphans in refugee camps detached them from traditional patterns of socialisation which people would have undergone in Afghanistan. And as a result, they tended to reflect much more purely the kind of ideological doctrine that was pumped into them in the religious establishments in which they were nurtured, which themselves were pretty eccentric, although the intellectual antecedents of those um, institutions went back to a famous madrasa in British India in 1867. The passage of time had actually perverted the ideologies being preached by the late 20th century to a fashion almost unrecognizable to those uh, who were the lineal ancestors of the the intellectual models that were being propagated and in a way it was almost as if street children had been armed and sent out to take over our country uh, the the pakistani journalist um Ahmed Rashid, I think, has very usefully compared the Taliban to Marxist concept of the lumpen proletariat, the, you know, the scum of the earth who don't articulate universal values in any kind of uh, fashion. Uh, and perhaps as a result of that, the support that they actually enjoy in Afghanistan is very low indeed. Uh, the best evidence that we have from this is from major surveys conducted by the Asia Foundation annually until 2019 when interfered with their ability to do a follow-up survey. And the 2019 survey suggested that 85.1% of respondents had no sympathy whatsoever for the Taliban. Uh, And of those who did have some sympathy, most expressed it not in terms of opposition to foreign forces or religious doctrine, but simply because they saw them as fellow Afghans. Um, and uh, this in a way is not surprising to me, given the youth of the population in Afghanistan and the different socialization experiences which they have undergone. That One of the great dangers in looking at, at a country like Afghanistan is to view it through the prism of the 19th century. And I've become very allergic to some of the tropes about tribal societies that crop up in some populist writings about Afghanistan that seem to suggest that the country is unchanged from what it was at the time of the First and Second Anglo-Afghan Wars in the 19th century. Um, On the contrary, there have been massive social changes within Afghanistan in recent years that make it very dangerous to see the country simply in terms of images of the past and the current president of Afghanistan who used to be uh, um, uh, a professor of anthropology at Johns Hopkins University argues that every day that passes the Afghan population becomes younger and more urbanized and those developments uh, one would naturally expect would have a significant impl- impl- set of implications for uh, how values would be formed within the population. And, and one other statistics I'd, I'd quote again from the uh, Asia Foundation um, survey of 2019, 65.1% of Afghans expressed themselves supportive of the idea of democracy, where one could change the rules without bloodshed. And in fact, if you've spent 20 to 30 to 40 years being told who will rule you rather than being asked. It's not surprising if people actually value the opportunity to change their rules without bloodshed. Um, And uh, again, I think this reflects the way in which modernity has found its way into Afghanistan on a much greater scale than a lot of journalistic accounts would lead one to think.
0: I have to say you're confirming a lot of my own Thoughts or my, my own suspicions about Afghanistan as a comparative sociologist, because yeah. I've also always been wary of that idea of the essentialization of Afghanistan, the great graveyard yeah. of empires. It's always been this way, but a lot of what you're saying is so familiar to me from thinking about West Africa. Yeah. Uh, so child soldiers, uh, you know, being taken off the streets and given a uh, a home in this you know paramilitary organization. This is all very familiar. I mean. Is Afghanistan really, in many, is it really so different from other profoundly poor, uh,
1: you know, very young uh, places in the world? Uh, perhaps one of the main differences, say, from West Africa, is the geopolitical environment. Afghanistan is actually in a very unpromising geopolitical environment because of Pakistan's desire to dominate Afghanistan in order to prevent a pro-Indian government emerging uh, to Pakistan's. West when it has such poor relations with India to the east as a result of Kashmir and, and the, all the legacy of partition of the subcontinent in 1947. The Taliban probably would not exist if it were not for the sanctuaries, the training, the funding that comes to the Taliban from Pakistan. To that extent, I think what we're witnessing in Afghanistan is is underspecified if we think of it as just a civil war or transnational war. It's really a creeping invasion by Pakistan of Afghanistan, because from Pakistan's point of view, the best possible outcome is a pro-Pakistani government in Afghanistan. If it can't get that, the next preferred outcome is a disordered Afghanistan. Its least desired outcome is a stable Afghanistan with a pro-Indian government in place. Uh, and a failure properly to grasp that is something which has really poisoned the approach to trying to negotiate about Afghanistan because too many analysts, particularly in the United States but elsewhere, have seen Pakistan as part of the solution when it's really part of the problem. And if you misframe uh, an issue so dramatically as that, your diplomacy is going to come terribly unstuck at some point, which is exactly what we've witnessed uh, following the so called peace agreement between the United States and the Taliban that was signed in February 2020. It's really been an unmitigated disaster. One would probably have to go back to Munich in 1938 to find anything as clumsy from a diplomatic point of view. And that really reflects in a significant degree, a misunderstanding of Pakistan's interests in Afghanistan, the um, extent to which the Taliban differ from their competitors, not just in terms of interest, but in terms of fundamental value systems, um, the extent to which uh, the process that you pursue in diplomacy can then have radical implications for successful implementation, essentially the United States shifting to a two-stage process rather than saying nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, gave the Taliban at the outset everything they really wanted and, of course, since then, they've not been interested in negotiating in good faith. They've been pursuing a military objective again. And as we know from some recent statistics that came out earlier this week, the level of civilian casualties in Afghanistan for the first six months of this year was 47% higher than for the comparable period in 2020, which tells you something about the extent to which the bilateral agreement between the Taliban and the United States has simply failed to deliver anything like peace in Afghanistan.
0: We do have a comment from a viewer uh, who has enormous uh, developing country experience all around the world, from Graham, who's pointing out that opium uh, has funded much of conflict in Afghanistan, and that is a historical constant, something that goes back uh, perhaps a couple centuries. Do do you have any thoughts on the drug trade in Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, it has played a significant role in undermining elements of the state in particular areas because uh, uh, there's, there's... significant provinces like Nangarhar and Helmand in which opium cultivation has taken off. Part of the problem was that in the early years after the uh, overthrow of the Taliban, the level of opium cultivation was relatively low, but the international actors were not interested in addressing the issue of opium cultivation at that stage, where it could have been strangled in its cradle relatively easily. By the time that agencies began to realise that it was a problem, there was a different kind of challenge, which was that there were a couple of million people um, who were involved at a low level in uh, the opium industry. And they were not making an enormous amount because most of the profits were not going in at the farm gate level, but up the, the value chain. But the problem was that the money that small, small cultivators and their families were getting from opium was just enough to make the difference between survival on the one hand and penury on the other hand. So if at that point one went in with a crop eradication approach, the danger was that you would tip 2 million people into destitution and they would easily be harvested by the Taliban. Uh, So the the political economy uh, became very destructive. Uh, What we do know from very detailed studies of opium cultivation in afghanistan is that there's not one single problem there are different drivers in different parts of of the country for opium cultivation so for example in some areas it's the lack of access to loans through a functioning banking system that drives people into opium cultivation because they borrow money for investment in agricultural equipment from the opium trader in exchange for cultivating a certain number of poppy a year so uh uh, something between the World Bank's grants and microfinancing for a sewing machine, if it could actually be deployed in rural Afghanistan, would actually break the back of this kind of dilemma, which sees people cultivating the poppy because it's the only way that, that they can get rural credit. In other areas, the problem is that uh, vegetables perish before they can get to market, whereas opium is not a perishable commodity. So uh, uh, if you actually put in some refrigeration points in different parts of Afghanistan, you might well be able to get farmers who are intensely price sensitive to cultivate um, uh, onions and things like that that can then be sold into Pakistan as long as they don't spoil before they reach the market. So I have never met people anywhere in the world who are as sensitive to market conditions as Afghan farmers. They are incredibly astute in uh, knowing what prices are prevailing. They're a classic example of Hayek's notion of pricing in a market as a source of information. Uh, and they exploit, exploit this to the full. And I've noticed that over a 25-year period when I was visiting farmers in northern Afghanistan in, 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 in the 1990s. It, uh, you can't teach them anything about farming. You can give them better strains of seed and things like that, but they really understand markets.
0: Now, our viewer, Stephen, has been remarkably patient because he got the first question in, but it's the last one going out. And this is about India's role in the Afghan conflict. You've highlighted Pakistan, and you've mentioned this, has, that Afghanistan is in some ways drawn into the whole India-Pakistan uh, standoff. Uh, our viewers, Some of our viewers may be aware that uh, India claims an international border with Afghanistan uh, in Pakistan-administered Kashmir in uh, Gilgit-Balt- Gilgit-Baltistan. I'm going to get that out, which is on the very uh, would-be in the very northwest of India had Pakistan not yeah. occupied it. Uh, during the um during 1949 or 1947. Um, What is your own view of India's potential in Afghanistan and what Afghanistan means for India?
1: Uh, Well, historically, uh, really, for the 30 years after partition, there was a much closer relationship between Hindu-majority India and Muslim-majority Afghanistan than between Muslim-majority Pakistan and Muslim-majority Afghanistan. That was because of a border dispute between Afghanistan and Pakistan dating back to 1893, the so-called Duran Line dispute over Pashtunistan. Um, India, in a way, has less leverage now than it has had for a long period of time, but it's not going to be enthusiastic about any spectacle of the Taliban coming back into Afghanistan. So under those circumstances, it may well be that India would already be looking at ways in which it could sustain anti-Taliban forces uh, within um, Afghanistan. And here the irony, of course, is that from Pakistan's point of view, it's very dangerous to play with forces like the Afghan Taliban, that they really are playing with fire because of the potential of that kind Kind of radical uh, mood to reflux into Pakistan. Uh, as well. There has been a Pakistani Taliban movement that had to be put down militarily a few years ago, and there could be real inspirational effects back into Pakistan if the Taliban take over in Afghanistan, with which the Pakistani state might not cope well. But the inspirational movements might not stop there. It could well be that there'd be inspirational movements into Southeast Asia as well and the Southern Philippines, uh, because when the Soviet Union collapsed, when the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan, there was a uh, a narrative that a radical religion could defeat even a superpower, that's up and running again, and it could inspire groups in um, regions much closer to Australia. So the, Afghanistan is not just a local problem. It's a problem which actually has ramifications for quite a wide range of states in its region and beyond.
0: Now, we're already over time, and I really shouldn't keep you for one last question. But I just have to know, uh, and I think our viewers really want to know, How do you think this is all going to play out? What's going to happen here?
1: I think it's not as yet absolutely clear what will happen, because what really matters is mass psychology. Uh, In a country like Afghanistan, it doesn't pay to be on the losing side. And really the worst failing of the U.S. agreement with the Taliban was that it made the Taliban look like likely winners and made the Afghan government look like likely losers, and that can then create a cascade in the sense in which, say, Timur Kuran has used the term where people reposition themselves in the light of how they think other people are positioning themselves. Uh, This goes back to Hobbes, who said reputation of power is power. Uh, and uh, it certainly applies in Afghanistan. So what's critical at the moment for the Afghan government is to find ways that in terms of mass psychology begin to turn the situation around, using military force to recover control of the customs posts at the Afghan borders, which the Taliban have been actively seizing in recent weeks, Uh, but also motivating the wider world to put serious pressure on Pakistan over the sanctuaries which it uh, holds. If Pakistan could actually be forced by the threat of major sanctions through the Financial Action Task Force or the threatened designation as state supporting terror, to move against the sanctuaries which they've long nurtured in Pakistan. That could turn the situation around in Afghanistan quite quickly. But I'm not actually predicting that because it would require the United States also to make a big shift from its framing of Pakistan as part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I'm frankly not convinced that the Biden administration is sufficiently adept or adroit to do that kind of thing.
0: Professor William Maley, thank you for joining us today.
1: My pleasure, great pleasure.
0: Thank you also to our producer, Nico Mallion, our executive producer, Max Weaver, The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvador Rabonis. Thanks everybody for joining us today and watching our program. You can find us here next week on